0: It's a treat to be here with you this evening, um, in the midst of your retreat. Thank you for letting me come. This evening's uh, talk is about metta, the heart's release. And we'll begin with a quote from the Buddha. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it and store it up and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha-Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. So this evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices for this transformation. And it's classically called a Brahma-vihara, which is, in English, a divine abiding it's this radiant warmth and openness of metta unconditional loving kindness and acceptance unconditional friendship the experience of connection and appreciation that isn't fraught with any clinging or attachment and not even necessarily with any sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of mind and heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's also really important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when we're able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep us from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experiences with clarity and kindness. So beginning with an ancient story, an old story, It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and very seemingly connected congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat. This forest was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters, who in fact offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in and practice during their rains retreat. And they also were very happy to keep the monks' alms bowls filled during this three-month practice period. And so the monks moved in and they began practicing vipassana. They began practicing insight meditation. It's said that the unseen beings the forest devas, who lived uh, in this uh, forest, became quite fearful of the monks. And they felt actually quite put out of their home when they realized that, in fact, the monks weren't just staying for a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling <coughs> beings began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights. And they began to emit some very distasteful odors hoping that this would um, make the monks leave what they considered to be there for us. Well, soon enough, the monks became quite terrified. And it broke their samadhi, it broke their concentration. It disrupted their mindfulness. And some of them even developed fever and pain, dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were feeling. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying, and they related their tale to him. And the Buddha responded this way. He said, my beloved monks, go back to exactly the same forest (coughs) and practice your meditation. Well, the monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading with him that they not be sent back to this forest again, saying that it was just impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, because you went to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions, many difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection. And it said it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta-teaching and the metta-practice. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta-teaching and the metta-practice, they went back to that same forest. And for a while they continued experiencing feelings of fear and anxiety. While at the same time, they very diligently and quite virtuously practiced metta. Soon enough, there were no more fearful sounds and sights. And whereas the devas had previously been quite hostile towards the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and a sense of really being connected, like with family, and the inclination arose in them to provide an environment of safety started happening for these forest-dwelling beings. They wanted to protect the monks from the particular dangers, such as poisonous snakes and tigers that might be lurking in the forest so that the monks could practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their samadhi, their concentration and open-hearted presence through this practicing metta, it said that all 500 monks at some point began again practicing vipassana. with metta as their foundation. And it said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that they all, every one of them, became arahants, became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of mind and heart protected through this energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless. With a mind and a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for, that brings connection. It's the energy, in fact, that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again throughout our practice, throughout the whole of our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, another particular person, or groups of beings. Wishing one's self and others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale. They're of course important on one level, but within this incredible radiant energy of warmth, that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love. Our personal wants and preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my own experience of human kindness is like the sunshine that warmth of the Sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being we could say that the practice of loving kindness it's akin to the sunshine the sunshine warmth in our heart warm warming our whole being our heart our mind and at some point then radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does the capacity to connect to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship unconditional acceptance and kindness where does it come from? It comes from our own experiences of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experiences of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been freely given to us from others. If you'd never in your whole life ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice of metta, with practice in general. But really, such people are very, very rare. Every one of us, every one of us here in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given to us freely. So, an example, very simple, ordinary experience. A few days ago, I walked into the post office here in Taos to pick up my mail. And as I got close to the outside door, someone opened the door for me. And I I didn't know this person, I'd never seen this person before. And we looked at each other as she opened the door, we looked at each other in the eyes and we smiled. And I thanked her. And I felt a really warm, momentary, but warm connection between us. So just that, that's unconditional kindness. That's metta in a very simple way. And of course, each of us have experienced kindness with people that we know with people that we're very close to very likely kindness and unconditional care with a much more overt stronger energy than my post office experience that unconditional warmth of loving kindness so this is where the seeds come from These are the seeds that are planted in us. These are the seeds that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water, we fertilize, that we cultivate by giving that to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. And we grow it. We cultivate it and we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again. It's this essential and very beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive, and the kindness that we give, it's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, in some way, their help. Unconditional kindness giving free, given freely. It's a choice. A very natural choice that others make, that we make. And it has an effect on us. It has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of the heart spring from. The other three divine abidings which are compassion, karuna in Pali, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita in Pali, and equanimity, upekka in Pali. It's also the capacity of the heart, the mind, that allows the whole breath of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, patience. With each of these and all of these qualities being a very essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of liberation. When I was in China in 1986, I found that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or we're inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind and continuing with the metaphor of breath, that is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? in the text it's often spoken of as non-ill will the absence of ill will in re- relationship to ourself meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind however they're manifesting moment to moment and the absence of ill will towards others So. No aversion in any direction, meaning no, for instance, comparing oneself in relationship to others. No comparison. No conceit. No pride. No self-depreciation. No self-judgment. And no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill-will in all directions. Not so easy, as I'm sure you know. For instance, here in retreat, how often might we think that maybe the person sitting next to us, or the person sitting on the other side of the room, how often might we think maybe that their practice is so much better? or maybe the comparing mind says that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am that felt judgment that inner felt judgment they're better than me or I'm no good or I'm great no sleepiness, no movement just look at that person over there, nodding restless moving around and on and on and on. Well obviously this is not meant to. We're actually creating a separation me other the heart the mind is contracted and it's uncomfortable and so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this too Is part of our practice. And we learned that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self centeredness, is to offer metta to oneself and also to offer metta to the other person in the One of the most striking aspects of meta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature, even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we're identified with and what we're attached to in either a positive or in a critical way as our self, our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature, in relationship to others as well. A heart-mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not only those that we're close to in our lives, those that it's easy to care about or those who might be useful or maybe amusing or pleasing to us. A heart, a mind that's filled with metta holds the possibility of a, of a for the capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity to be able to connect and care for any being. All beings. and from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation Is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible and you must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, patience, and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. as you each are practicing here in the very specific ways that you are cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness some of you may also be working with the practice of metta in relationship to its purifying and healing aspects as our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and the mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through our heart and our mind and our body begin to unwind weaken, to fade, and ev- even eventually to potentially dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta Someone once asked the great Indian uh, spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who taught his uh, students through dialogue, someone once asked him the question, What can make me love? And Nisargadatta's response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing for me and so important when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of them. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with. Or connect with beings who may act in ways that we might not like. Or even might not condone. Metta is acceptance on a deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites. No favoring one over another with metta. Consequently, it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings this most subtle and most powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to really understand that it's impersonal in nature. And that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So for just a moment reflecting Reflecting that if there was no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart. It would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history, up until this very moment, when there's been more or less meta manifesting in the world more peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been, and in fact is, increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Mitzger says this. She says, There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. He said, Hatred can never (coughs) cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. (coughs) If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impulse that our thoughts and words and actions spring from, if our motivations and our intentions spring from the heart of metta, The karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and also in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never, ever know. So I'd like now to spend just a few moments exploring some of the expectations (coughs) that we might think uh, the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some familiar felt sense. And of course our (coughs) expectation is based on something that that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect or impossible to look for uh, something that we don't know, something that we may have never experienced, or to look for something that, in fact, we may have experienced, but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness, didn't label as unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught, we can actually get stuck in expecting this. It's limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, Free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that Metta arises. And it may not necessarily be a feeling we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind and a heart free of ill will. You could say that this is meta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are so many layers of conditioning that need to be seen. Seen through, we could say, and let go of along the way of our practice. I have found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar that demonstrates this very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, and he was foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. This story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. And the monks were beginning to disperse for their various uh, duties and responsibilities in other places. This is Sutta in a somewhat abbreviated version. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindaka's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains' retreat at Savati and wished to leave for a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you are ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me, and left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another, another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then, two of the Buddha's other chief disciples, Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today the venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in in presence of the Buddha. The venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him sat down to one side. When he was seated the Buddha said one of your fellow monks here has complained that you hid him and left on your journey without an apology. And the venerable Sariputta responded "Lord." I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Bhikkhu Rahula was the Buddha's son. I remember the discourse you gave to Bhikkhu Rahula when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learn from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth, whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it's not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, and yet for all that the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A a monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful, and yet for all that the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day a monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me and I shall practice restraint in the future." And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry and unskilful, that used, accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. Then he turned to the venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he, too, forgive me and then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three, time to, three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is really one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was about seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and put it into my mouth with a big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and very pure expression of the heart of kindness, of the heart of Menta. A while ago, I read a book that was about and by a 102 year old black man whose name was George Dawson. And he grew up on his family's farm in East Texas. He was the son of grand- uh, he was the grandson of slaves. <coughs> at the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school and he never learned how to read until at the age of ninety eight he decided to attend a literacy program. And he learned how to read at the age of ninety eight. And then, he wrote a book about himself. (coughs) It's really an amazing, inspiring, and illuminating book. And George describes how he learned to read the world and to survive in it. So I'd like to read a a little bit of this uh, book. At one point, George was having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking about George who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, in his words, doing just fine. And so this is a conversation, Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not really alone. And George, That's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people come by the way they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I've met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard. What goes around comes around. George. That's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard. People worry too much? George. That's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. It can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can. And if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta is metta itself. So as an example of the stability and the beauty of a heart, of a mind, steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue on a little bit with our 102-year-old Bodhisattva. George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book, George's book, begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65 years old, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George. These are George's words now. (coughs) She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf, above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good. As hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in in a quiet spot to say grace, when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table, But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back up on the shelf, and being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't mean to insult me, but she didn't know better. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I wasn't an animal. I wasn't going to eat with the dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Did not you see that lunch I left out on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me I stood up to it and I repeated I'm a human being she was so angry she couldn't speak I waited finally in a cold tone she said you don't need to come back anymore and I said that's right I don't need And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release a relinquishment of much of what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped, and often very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on, as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And as I've already said, and we all know, it's not so easy at times. But it's very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy that's constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear, straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of Menta. And in closing the talk, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman who was named Sue Ann Crow. Sue Ann was born on March 15th, in 1974, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. <coughs> she grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house uh, or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kinds, unsupervised wanderings and then uh, later, uh, cruising around in cars, were completely out. Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was, strong, was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the very small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve, when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was, and she gave talks on the subject to school and to youth groups, and even made a video Urging her message. Ral Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence in the life prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Ral said. Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did them all. Cross-country running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times with each hand every day. So she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. Her and her mother and her sisters got very tired of the sound. So for variety, she would shoot layup shots against the gutter and the drain pipes until they came loose from the house and then had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently, and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians, unapologetically, and will tell you why. And in their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the, players, and, and, uh, and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games their kids will be insulted, their fans will, fi- fans will feel unwelcome, and the host gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in games between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium in Leeds, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Lead to play a basketball game. And Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And after that, the home team would come out and do the same thing and then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, who was one of the tallest, went first. As the team that evening was waiting in the the hallway leading to the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving fruit stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal (coughs) federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann very quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie, uh, Donnie became quite suspicious. And she said, Don't embarrass us. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise and some of them bumped into each other. Coat Zamiga, who was at the rear of the line, had no idea why they'd stopped. So Anne turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulders and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance that she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was pow like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Then Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie to Corey, ran a lap around the court dribbling expertly and fast, and the audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air and laid the ball right through the hoop with the fans cheering very loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of any single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at Center Court in the gym at LEED. And I agree, that was Sue Ann's Lion's Roar. And a little uh, poem by Hafiz called, The Sun Never Set. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy. and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. And the Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because of the power behind his words, because the power behind his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter maybe a difficult situation and you do what seems to come quite naturally. And then, after the fact, realize that you handled the situation very differently from the way that you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused mindful awareness, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say to a friend who asks you how you were able to stay so present and do so easily what needed to be done, but it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and changes the lives of everyone you encounter. So closing this evening's talk with a valentine that I received uh, a couple of years ago. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. So this is a valentine to all of us. I have a student um, who lives in Minneapolis who every year sends a valentine to a big list. I'm just one person on our list. And this particular valentine, uh, at the top of what I'm going to share with you, was a circle about this big bright red and in the middle of it were black letters that said this is love and this is our valentine (coughs) take this tiny label, stick it on your dining table, stick it on your favorite book stick it where you always look. Stick it on some brand new shoes. Stick it on the evening news. Stick it on a broken heart. Stick it on a hospice chart. Stick it to a violin. Stick it on your thinnest skin. Stick it on a long lost friend. Stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall. Use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror, yes. See it when your hair is a mess. Stick it on the Congress floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare. Let's sit quietly for just a moment. listening to the double.